September on giving from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, but it's been a while since we've been looking at 2 Corinthians. And it's going to be tough because 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is a bit of a difficult passage, uh, but we're going to jump into it. And then it's difficult because uh, it's January 6th and you're all confused of what day it is and full of cheese, as it says on the internet there. So, uh, so we've got our work cut out for us this morning, but we're ready, aren't we? All right, so I'll pray, and at least some of you are ready, so that's good. We can help each other out. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I'll pray, and then uh, I think I'll read the whole chapter, even though we're just going to look at the first, and uh, it'll be clear as we go. All right, so Father, we're so thankful uh, just for your presence here with us. We're thankful that we're not left uh, on our own uh, to sort these things out, but your spirit is here with us and your word says that your spirit helps us to understand your word your spirit helps us to apply your word and so that's what we look for this morning we look for understanding uh, but we don't just want our heads to be full of more knowledge we want our hearts to be changed uh, we want to be more conformed into the image of your son and so father we pray that you would come this morning by your spirit and just do uh, what only you can do in us and so we pray for eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what you want to say to us this morning. For your glory we pray. Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I don't have the whole chapter on the screen, uh, so bring your Bibles. There. Yeah, getting tough. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, but I do have the first few verses. Hopefully the title has got your attention a little bit. It's a bit of a shock title. I'm guilty of that, but conflict resolution would have been so boring, right? <laughs> so we'll say how to fight in church, and that gets everyone's attention. <clears throat> I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, 
without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So I told you it was a bit of a bruiser, right? Even just trying to follow what in the world Paul is talking about is a bit difficult. But here we go, okay? I'll hopefully help us to wrap our heads around what's going on, and then, uh, and then we'll hopefully pull some things out. So the scene uh, in Corinth isn't a good one. Uh, their relationship with Paul at the Corinthian church, the man who planted the church and oversees the church as apostle, is strained, to say the least. Uh, Paul has already made reference to painful visits and severe letters. He has had to address an issue of a man committing incest and then guide the church through that. There's a group of false teachers leading people away from the gospel. And so it's not a, it's not a model church. It's not the flagship of Paul's apostolic ministry. But by the time we get to chapter 10, we've learned that by God's grace, many of the Corinthians have repented. Much of the church is with Paul. And through the first nine chapters, uh, that group of people is, has been Paul's main focus. But it's here at the beginning of chapter 10 that 2 Corinthians takes a bit of an ominous turn. Uh, whereas chapters 1 to 9 were directed towards the repentant majority in Corinth, chapters 10 to 13 focus on the unrepentant minority. And so as we read the opening line of the chapter, we can almost hear the dramatic music in the background, right? I, Paul, myself entreat you. Dun, 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 right? This is where the big, the big turn is. There's still a small pocket of people in the church at Corinth who oppose Paul. They have an inverted value system that led them to see no value really in Paul's ministry. They accuse him of being two-faced. They say that he isn't guided by the Spirit. He's unimpressive and all the things that make up Paul, his lack of rhetorical skills, his poverty, his meek and humble demeanor, his lack of ecstatic experiences and visions, his suffering and trials, all these things were for them solid evidence that his uh, apostolic authority had no weight at all, that he wasn't anointed by God, he was just guided by his own selfish desires. So they just kind of saw Paul as a sucker right? He's just a wimp. He's just two-faced. They didn't think very highly of Paul at all. And so Paul, in chapter 10, he's going to address this issue, and he knows that it's much more than him just having a bruised ego uh, and by not everyone being on board with him. These mixed-up values that the, these Corinthians have, uh, along with their rejection of him as apostle, meant that nothing less than the gospel was at stake and their own salvation, ultimately. And so Paul isn't going to sign off on this letter that we know as 2 Corinthians without addressing this head-on. And I think in doing so, for us this morning, he lays an excellent framework for how we can and should approach conflict in the church. Okay? So that's what we're going to look at. It's... Uh, the best New Year's resolution is for resolution. There you go, right? So we've got a different kind of New Year's resolution here on the first Sunday of the year. So let's get it out of the way right off the bat. There will be conflict in the church, okay? I don't know how much of a surprise that is to you, 
or what your uh, ideas are about the church, but there will be conflict in the church. I expect that's not news to many of us. Uh, conflict itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, we're different people with different ex expectations, different views on things, different opinions. As far as I'm aware, none of us have been fully conformed into the image of Christ. And so we all walk around with hearts that have sinful desires. We have bad days and we show up at kids club or kids church or here on Sunday morning or our life group and those bad days splash up on those around us. And so, and on top of all that, we have an enemy who still prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour with division and with bitterness and with rage and envy and the like. And so we can and should expect conflict. If I asked you why people leave a church, probably the number one answer we would give is because of conflict. But really, when you think about it, no one really leaves a church because of conflict. They leave a church because conflict hasn't been handled well. And so our desire shouldn't be to be a church that has no conflict. Our desire should be to be a church that handles conflict well with maturity and glory to God. We want to be a church that fights well, right? This is why Mark did the This Is Us series about our core values and not me. Because value number four, a church that fights well, right? Could lend itself to misinterpretation. But we want to be a church that fights well. Karen and I have had the privilege of leading a few couples through marriage prep over the years, and that chapter on conflict resolution is always a good time, hand-in-hand hand with the chapter on communication. They're the two key things. We didn't communicate well, so now we have a conflict. It's difficult to resolve the conflict because it's hard to communicate when you're in the middle of a conflict, which we didn't even do well to begin with, which is the whole reason we are here in the first place, right? So there's this conflict, communication, conflict, communication, and it's a good time. And Karen and I never seem to be at a loss for real-life examples when we go through those sections, mostly from my end, uh, but, but God's given us a wealth of illustrations to use in those settings. I remember early on in our marriage and hearing uh, Barb and Gary talk honestly about where they were at early on in their marriage and it was such a freedom for Karen and I and just think, oh, this conflict is to be expected. We're normal, or we're at least as weird as Barb and Gary, and we like them, and so we're okay with that. <laughs> but it was a great freedom for us to, to understand that conflict was to be expected. And so just like in a marriage in the church, conflict is to be expected as well. The sheep will butt heads on occasion. Uh, what we do with the conflict, though, is of utmost importance, and that's where I think 2 Corinthians 10 is so helpful. And so we're not really going to look at <clears throat> like the nuts and bolts, but they're more kind of general, big-picture principles that we can uh, carry into a situation and hopefully find some help. So you don't have to tell Paul that conflict in a church is to be expected because he's staring it in the face in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, through what he says, I think he shows us four things that should be characteristics of conflict in the church. We'll only get through two of them this morning, and then we'll pick it up in a couple of weeks when we look at the other two. 
so perhaps the picture will be a bit incomplete this morning, uh, but, but hopefully we come in for a landing as well, and we don't have to wait until two weeks when we finish. We can still respond uh, to God's leading, even with these first two points in the interest of time and to properly handle the passage that's probably what's best so that we can all still have lunch and you not have a conflict with me right (laughs) so this might be hard stuff for us to look at for some of us and i'm certainly not standing up here as an expert in conflict resolution karen's in the third row if anyone uh, would like to ask Um, but uh, we're all in this together and for some of us Uh, This is going to be difficult because I believe as we look at these things, uh, the Spirit is going to be putting His finger on some situations that we might be in right now or even some situations that have long blown over but haven't been properly dealt with. And while I was preparing this week, I had a bit of a picture of, you know, in the movies there's like this artifact or something and it's in the desert and it's buried and then the wind blows and the sand starts blowing it off and it starts to be revealed and waits for somebody to find it and and adore it do you know that kind of that kind of picture and i just had the feeling that uh well my desire really is that as we look at this passage that the holy spirit begins to blow and uh, that some sand of of bitterness or offense or resentment or unforgiveness or frustration or apathy, some of those sands start to be blown off so that a relationship that was once adored and cherished but has been buried for some time can be picked up and and cherished again. And so that's my desire, that's my hope for us this morning. So how to fight in church. Here we go. First, I think Paul shows us what our attitude should be when we approach conflict in the church. And look at what he says in verses 1 and 2. He says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing. <clears throat> so I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And then we have that part between the between the dashes. And that's Paul kind of sarcastically repeating the rumor that is floating around Corinth. I know what they're saying about me. From a distance I write these scathing letters, but when I show up I'm just a weakling. That part in between the dashes is him kind of commenting on what he knows that they're saying about him. The accusation is that Paul is basically a first century internet troll, pretty tough from behind a keyboard, making critical comments on everyone's post. He's got a pretty intense profile picture, but when he shows up, he's just a weakling. In person, he doesn't amount to much. But Paul doesn't get his back up. He says, hey, I'm entreating you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, and I'm begging of you not to put me in a situation where I need to be bold. Turn away from that way of thinking. Let's be done with this division. I'm ready to be bold, but first I want to be gentle and meek. And that's really the attitude we ourselves need to have when dealing with others. Eager to be gentle, but ready to be bold. So our attitude when we come to conflict is an eagerness to be gentle and a readiness to be bold. 
We should be eager to be gentle. These people in Corinth have said horrible things about Paul. They're spreading lies and rumors and division. But he says, I appeal to you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Some people just rush into conflict. They love conflict. They love a good fight. They don't seem to be happy unless they're in the middle of some row uh, with another person. There's no joy unless they're upset with someone. And they just want to get into it with people. They love those judgment psalms. And let's just read Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel every morning. And just really, we just love to get into it. And we just rush into a situation just saying, is there any tables I can flip here? And let me crack my whip and let's, let's get at it. Right? But Paul reminds us Christ is meek and gentle. I entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. And so very first, we just need to pause and ask, do we know that about Jesus? Do we know the meekness and the gentleness of Christ? Do you see Christ as meek and gentle? When Jesus walked this earth, he gave the invitation, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. In David's song of deliverance in 2 Samuel 22, he sings, You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. And then Isaiah 42.3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. And so a bruised reed is like a little blade of grass. And Isaiah says that if a reed is bruised and bent, God just won't come and break it off. He supports it. Maybe puts a rod down beside it and gets it supported and lifted up. If he sees a, a smoldering wick, he's not just going to lick his fingers and snuff it out. He's going to fan it back into flame, get it back up. We need to understand the gentleness of Christ. Before we even get to conflict resolution between ourselves, we just need to stop right here and take a deep breath of the gentleness and meekness of Christ. And if you feel like a bruised reed or you feel like the smoldering wick of a lamp, you need to know that his heart is warm and tender towards you. If you're a smoldering wick, he wants to fill you with oil Gently fan that faint spark of light back into a flame. If you're bruised, don't try to conceal your wounds. Open it all before him and never fear to go to God. Never fear to go to God. He doesn't want to break you off. He wants you to see the greatness of his compassion toward you. The double trick of Satan is to get you to not fear running away from God and to fear running to him. The double trick of Satan is to get you to not fear running away from God and to fear running to him. So never fear to go to God. Never fear to go to God in your sin, in your weakness, in your failure. Satan will do his best to present God as a severe judge armed with justice against you. 
when the reality is that God has already poured out His wrath for that sin on His Son on the cross. And for you now, there is mercy. And we can come without fear to His throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace in our time of need. We need to see the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Our conflict with God is completely one-sided. We sin against God. God has never wronged us. And yet, what do we see in Him? Gentleness and meekness toward us. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. He comes with forgiveness, with healing, with mercy. He comes for the brokenhearted, the weary, the heavy burdened. Never fear to go to God. Never fear to go to God. Never fear to go to God. And so right off the bat, Paul points us to the meekness and the gentleness of Christ for the attitudes that we should have in our conflict with each other. Paul has an eagerness to be gentle with the Corinthians. Do we share that eagerness in our conflicts? Do we share that eagerness to be gentle and meek? In our conflicts, in our relationships, do we have a first impulse gentleness? Do we have a first impulse gentleness? How many of our conflicts would be settled and how much hurt and pain would be avoided if we approach things with that first impulse gentleness? If we were slow to anger, if we were willing to give people the benefit of the doubt before jumping to conclusions, if we were willing to help people save face. One quote that has impacted me over the years, uh, one quote I, I keep coming back to, it's an old one, it's by uh, an old Puritan guy, R Richard Sibbs, and uh, speaking on the, uh, the Isaiah verse of the bruised reed and the smoldering wick, he says this, We must not be too curious to pry into the weaknesses of others. We should labor rather to see what they have that is for eternity, to incline our hearts to love than into the weaknesses which the Spirit of God will in time consume. Some think it strength of grace to endure nothing in the weaker, whereas the strongest are readiest to bear with the infirmities of the weak. The Holy Spirit is content to dwell in smoky, offensive souls. Oh, that the Spirit would breathe into our spirits the like merciful disposition. Consider the gracious nature in Christ. Let us think to ourselves, when he is so kind to us, shall we be so cruel against him in his name, in his truth, in his children? Labor to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What a joyful spectacle it is to Satan to see those who are separated from the world fall in pieces among themselves. Our discord is the enemy's melody. Our discord is the enemy's melody. We must not be too curious to pry into the weaknesses of others. We should labor rather to see what they have that is for eternity, to incline our hearts to love them rather than into the weaknesses which the Spirit of God will in time consume. Paul says to the Corinthians, I am eager to be gentle among you. 
but he also makes sure that they know that he is ready to be bold if needed. He makes that clear in verse 2. Paul has a first impulse gentleness, but he is also very prepared to bring a last resort boldness if needed. He says, for I know you're ready. Oh, I was in nine. He says, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. And so we need to see that as well, because far from being those who love conflict, some of us never confront. Some of us avoid conflict at all costs. How can I just keep everything peaceful and everyone liking me? But sometimes there are situations that do require boldness. They do require confrontation. But too often in the church, we sit back, let the boldness and lack the boldness to tell a friend the decisions that you are making are not in line with God's will for you. Or I feel like you're on a slippery slope away from God and I'm concerned. Or you've wronged me and we need to get this sorted. And yes, we need to do it with love and there's never a place for being rude or demeaning, but sometimes some situations require boldness where we confront a brother and sister and we say, what you've done is not right. It's not nice, polite, or loving to watch a friend make decisions away from God and say nothing. I was mentioning what I was speaking on this morning to Jody Ward at work this week, and she referenced back to a sermon Joe preached a while ago, I guess, where he said, not to confront is to reject. Not to confront is to reject. I would say sometimes you need to stir the pot to avoid things burning on the bottom. Solomon probably said it better than both of us when he said, an open rebuke is better than hidden love. Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. And so we need to be eager to be gentle, but we also need to be ready to be bold. Like Paul and like Jesus, we need to hold both of these things. We need to hold both of these things. Because listen, there's mean people in the church who call themselves courageous, and there are cowards in the church who operate under the guise of being nice. And for a church to be healthy and mature, we can't have either of those things. And as I look at my own life, I certainly see many times when I've lacked that first response, gentleness. And maybe I called it courage. Maybe I called it something, but really it was just mean and it was just harsh. And I see many other times when I've lacked the boldness that the situation required. And I probably called it nice and loving. So some of us this morning might need to get before God and repent of our meanness, our harshness, our vengefulness. We may have labeled it something else like courage or shooting from the hip or critical thinking, but really we've just been mean. And we need to repent of not having that same first impulse gentleness and meekness towards our brothers and sisters that Christ affords us. 
And some of us might need to get before God and repent of our cowardice and our approval sinking and our apathy and ask God to fill us with boldness to address situations and confront those we love in order to see the conflict resolved and both parties growing in God. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, If you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, go and make it right. And in Matthew 18, he says, If someone has wronged you, go make it right. And in no chapter of Matthew or any other gospel does he say, Just let it be, let it be, and sweep it under the rug. Reconciliation and unity is so important to Jesus that he puts the responsibility on both parties to do the hard and humbling thing of going and getting it sorted. We can focus quite a bit on the Ephesians 4 ministries and apostles and prophets and evangelists and us growing up into maturity. But the very first thing Paul mentions in Ephesians 4 is for us to be humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, and making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Before he gets to all that stuff about apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers and us growing up into maturity, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So when Angela sings, I want to be where you are, he's the Prince of Peace. So how can we be content to just live in discord and disunity? How can we be content with bitterness in our hearts? Our desire is we want to be where he is, and he's the Prince of Peace. Paul says, make every effort, make every effort, Make every effort. We can have all the prophecies and all the evangelistic ministries, but if we can't handle conflict with maturity and love, then what's the point? Our discord is the enemy's melody. Let me just say that sometimes the greatest disunity can happen in a church between those that we are closest with. And so if there's discord and disunity in a family, you need to see that that affects the broader church family. I know that that can be the, the trickiest part. Is sometimes we can come and be a part of this big family, but in our immediate families we've got a lot of disunity. We've got a lot of conflict that hasn't been resolved. And we need to see that because we're a part of the bigger family, that that conflict in our family is splashing out and affecting the disunity of the whole church. How to fight in church? Paul first shows us that our attitude should be one where we are eager to be gentle, but we're ready to be bold. We're eager to be gentle but we're ready to be bold. After seeing what our attitude should be in the fight, Paul also shows us what our ammo needs to be. I'm sorry I made them all A's. I can't help it, okay? Even the two next week will be A's, okay? But it helps, I think. So we have our attitude, but we also have what our ammo needs to be in our conflict. In verses 1 and 2, the accusation against Paul 
is that he is two-faced. He's a tough guy when he writes his letters, but an approval-seeking wimp when he's face-to-face. Paul's addressed that at the end of verse 2 and into verses 3 to 6. Paul now addresses the second accusation against him, that his ministry is not guided by the Spirit, but the flesh, that Paul operates according to the flesh, that he just uses human tactics and worldly wisdom and ignores the resources of the Holy Spirit. And as we've noted from the whole of the letter, we can get an idea of what this group in Corinth meant by that. For this bunch in Corinth still rebelling against Paul, the fact that Paul lacked eloquence, he lacked supernatural encounters in their opinion, he lacked comfort and ease, he lacked the splash and the flash they saw in other teachers, these things, these things led them to conclude Paul is of the flesh. Paul is just of the flesh. And so he addresses that in verse 3. He says, some suspect us of walking according to the flesh. And it's like he says, yeah, I'll, I'll admit that. I'll admit that. But even though I walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For our weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. So what does Paul mean by that? Well, when Paul says, yeah, I do walk in the flesh, he just means, yeah, I have a body. I walk on this earth. And I have limitations and weakness. I'm a frail clay jar. I'll admit that. I walk in the flesh. And we need to admit that too. We need to admit, especially when we come to a conflict, hey, I've got weaknesses too. I'm walking in the flesh just like this person is walking in the flesh. We can be so quick. I find myself able to so quickly elevate a view of myself when I feel wronged by another. And sometimes that admission of, I walk in the flesh too, is needed. I walk in the flesh too. I've got some weaknesses and I've got some limitations on me. That's why Sib says we must not be too curious to pry into the weaknesses of others. We walk in the flesh too. But then Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. So yeah, I might have weaknesses and limitations just like everyone else in the world, but I'm not fighting here in the way that the world fights. And victory in this war is not dependent on the power and the smarts of the soldier, but on the power of the weapon that he carries. And so I may walk weakly, but I fight strongly. A weapon is designed to be used a certain way, And so Paul says, I'm not going to engage in this battle with the tactics of the world because I'm not carrying the world's weapons. I'm not going to engage in this conflict in the way that the world engages in conflict because I've been issued different weapons than what the world has. I've been equipped with different weapons that are to be used a different way. And so I'm not waging war according to the flesh Because as a spirit-filled follower of Christ, I've got different weapons at my disposal. So Paul isn't comparing material weapons to spiritual weapons. It's not a guns and swords versus prayer and worship type of thing. He's talking about the weapons the world uses to fight. Cunning, deception, threats, manipulation, guilt, comparison, you don't measure up to me competition, I win, you lose mentality, those things that are devoid of the divine power, 
Paul refuses to use those things. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know that the weapons that he is using are powerful. And so the tricky thing, if you've ever looked at 2 Corinthians 10, the tricky thing about the passage is that Paul never really says what those weapons are. Don't know if you've noticed that. He talks a lot about what they do, and we'll get to that next week, next time. But he never really mentions what the weapons are, and you just think, oh, come on, Paul, just spell it out a little clearer to a guy with a grade 12 education. (laughs) Be a little bit more clearer. Help a brother out. But he doesn't. He never really specifies what these powerful weapons are at his disposal. And certainly the war imagery brings to mind Ephesians 6 and the armor of God. So I think it's not a stretch to include faith and the word of God and prayer and so on. But elsewhere in Paul's writings to the Corinthians, he talks of Christ leading those who has triumphant, he has triumphantly freed from the enemy and now has made his captives and how they carry the fragrance of the knowledge of God. That's in chapter 2. It has that same war imagery, and it's about the knowledge of God. In chapter 6, he talks of weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And in, back in 1 Corinthians, in his first letter to them, he opens it up by talking about the word of the cross has divine power. And so I think it's not a stretch to conclude that the weapon that Paul has in mind, generally speaking here, could be summed up as the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the weapon at Paul's disposal that he's referencing here is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of God, the righteousness of God. The word of the cross has divine power. We'll look at what Paul says this weapon does in part two, but for this morning, I think the best place we can land is by reminding ourselves that the best weapon we can bring into a battle and is to declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ. The best weapon that we can carry into a conflict is the gospel of Jesus Christ, to declare it and to display it. We need to declare the gospel to ourselves and the other person. Before going to seek our resolution, Remind yourself of the greatness of God's grace towards you in Jesus Christ. It's one of the best ways that you can wield this gospel weapon when you come to conflict resolution. Is to kind of get your heart warmed by the gospel before going in to address that cold situation. Does that make sense? So we remind ourselves that in Jesus we are fully loved and accepted by our Heavenly Father, fully reconciled and adopted to Him. Even while you are still sinful, fearful, and weak, you have a Lord who at great cost to Himself loved you faithfully, laid down His life for you, and covered you from the wrath of a holy God. You're completely saved from the devil and eternal death in hell and guaranteed life forever with your creator. You've been made new, given a whole new life by the Holy Spirit who lives and powerfully works in you. You have a great king who overcame sin and death and the devil for you and has promised you a hope and an inheritance and has promised to work all things, including this conflict, together for your good. 
And so we get our hearts warmed by the gospel. And as you work those truths into your heart, perspective begins to change. Perspective begins to change. And you can then reflect those truths out to the other person and display the gospel to them in the midst of conflict. And I tell you what that does. That then takes a situation that could bring disunity and turns it into an opportunity for grace. It takes that situation where you've got things against me and I've got things against you and it could really cause division and disunity and it turns it around and creates an opportunity for grace. When we declare the gospel to ourselves, the more our heart is for the person we are in conflict with because we realize that we share these promises with them. So all those things I just read, my heart is warmed by that for myself, but then I, I come to the understanding Joe shares in those promises as well. And so this, this division, that this, this uh, conflict that might be between us, well, then my, pers- my whole perspective on that has changed. Bonhoeffer said, I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face, which may have been strange and intolerable to me before, is transformed in intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner. So Bonhoeffer says, I've got this guy and he's just annoying me to death. But when I pray for him, I start to change how I view him. And now he's not just an annoyance. It's the face of a forgiven sinner. And so we need more than the latest strategy or list of techniques to resolve conflict. What we need is the rescuing grace of God. We need more than just new techniques. We need more than just strategies. If we don't have the rescuing grace of God working in our heart, it's not going to bring the resolution that God desires. We need the grace of God, grace that has the power to shape everything we do as a church, including conflict resolution. So that because of the gospel working in my heart, I'm not going to approach this conflict looking to promote myself because my desire is for God to get glory. I'm not going to be ruled by greed because I can be content in Christ. I'm not going to let my own comfort and power set the terms of agreement because I realize that it is in suffering and weakness that God's glory is most displayed. I can be willing to endure the price of resolution because Jesus has paid the ultimate price of death to resolve the ultimate conflict of my sinful rebellion. If the gospel just kind of stays up here and it's just a thing where we just, oh, well, the gospel has saved me, but it's not getting down into the corners of our life. If the gospel isn't shaping how we approach conflict, then it hasn't really worked very deep in our hearts. It's more than just a ticket to heaven. The gospel is God's transforming power for every area of life, for every relationship, including those relationships that are in conflict. 
And so we need to stop using the world's weapons of manipulation or guilt trips or deceit or comparison or of always trying to one-up the other person or you did this and so I'm going to do this. We need to stop using the world's weapons to fight our fights and start using the gospel and its power and its principles to shape how we approach our conflicts. Let every one of our conflicts be shaped by the gospel. We need to stop it. We need to stop it. Our discord is the enemy's melody. Just so you know, I don't have anything in particular in mind when I say that. And so I'm not trying to preach to anybody. I'm not even particularly aware of situations. But I just know that we're all people. And I know that we're all walking in the flesh. But we can't wage war according to the flesh. And I love the church. And I hate seeing the church in disunity. And so let's start using the weapons that are available to us to bring the victory to our conflicts, the victory of resolution, so that God can get glory. There's more to say, but we'll stop there for this morning. And we'll look at the rest of the chapter in a couple weeks. But as the band comes up, I would encourage you that if you feel the Holy Spirit at work, if you feel His prompting, however hard or painful it might be, Let's respond to his leading. Let's respond to his leading. We don't need to wait for a couple of weeks to finish the chapter and get more. We can respond now if, if the Holy Spirit is, is prompting you. Maybe you need to repent of past things that you have failed to handle with gentleness or boldness. Maybe you need to confess that your go-to weapon as of late has been manipulation or comparison or guilt trips and you realize you need to turn to the power and the principles of the gospel to get things sorted maybe you need to use this last song to get your heart stirred and warmed by the gospel because you know you've got a difficult conversation that you need to address whatever it might be I would encourage you to be sensitive to his leading and to act on it we want to be hearers of the word, not doers. And we want to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Why don't we stand up and I'll pray. God, our, our prayer to you this morning is simple. For myself, at least, we come to your word and it is like a mirror and we see ourselves and we see our own weaknesses and we see our own failures and we see our own sin. But we're also so thankful that we get a very clear view of your grace for us, your grace that is so gentle towards us. 
And we see all these things where we haven't handled conflict well and we've lacked gentleness and we're harsh and we're mean or we've lacked boldness and we haven't addressed things and they've festered and we've got bitter and we could just be crushed under the weight of that. But then we remind ourselves that you will not break a bruised reed and you will not quench a smoldering wick. And so we come to you to receive that mercy and grace in our time of need. We come to you for forgiveness, but we come to you as well for empowerment to resolve conflicts with maturity and with love so that your church can be all that it was meant to be. We don't have a false hope of a church without conflict, but we do seek to be a church that handles conflict well, that deals with things, and is such an example to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, sir.